Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Oahu, Hawaii, it's time for Oahu Business Radio. Now, here's your host. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Facility Access. This is Lee Cantor, and it's going to be an exciting episode of Oahu Business Radio. Today, we got with us John Doc Fuller with Prison Coach Speaking and Consulting. Welcome. Hi, how are you, Lee? I am doing well. I'm excited to learn about what you're up to. Tell us about Prison Coach Speaking and Consulting. Well, it's a business um, that I've had for the past 16, 17 years. I spent um, one year in state prison, 10 years in federal prison, through various uh, lows, mediums, and high institutions um, throughout the country. So upon release, um, by happen chance, one of my um, clients at a local gym had a nephew who was going to prison for the first time. And he asked me, would I mind stopping by to just let him know what he would be in for? So what I thought would be 25, 30 minute conversation turned out to be anywhere from four to six hours. And um, hence a business was born. So your job is to coach people up as they enter prison? Yeah, first-time offenders, um, people who are very nervous about navigating uh, the prison system. And my business has morphed since then. Um, Most of my clients are, you know, white-collar criminals and celebrities. Um, But I've since morphed into training Uh, criminal defense attorneys who have continuing legal education classes. Um, A lot of them want a better understanding, in addition to judges who often sit in on my uh, presentations, to better understand all of the nuances from the time a person knows that he's going to surrender him or herself to prison to the time that they actually self-surrender. And so the ideal situation for any client would be, you know, 90 days prior to going in. Um, All of the affairs that they can genuinely speaking, generally speaking, put into place prior to surrendering to prison. So what is um, kind of, uh, when you're working with your clients, uh, I'm sure fear is a big part of the fear of the unknown. Um, maybe watch too many movies. What what are some of the kind of the psychological issues you're dealing with with uh, a client? Well, most men um, reach out out of a fear of being, will they be raped? Will they be extorted? Um, and it, it ranges because, you know, occasionally I'll get a call from women who may be ready to give birth. Uh, guys um, who may have extorted money from high-profile drug dealers and perhaps laundered it through their legitimate corporation. And um, the prison works a little bit like the Internet. Everyone's connected to someone through that, quote-unquote, six degrees of separation. And so it's very difficult to duck uh, your debt in prison, no matter where you are. 
So when um, when you're working with these folks, are you just there to tell them stories or uh, answer their questions? Like, what is the kind of the arrangement work with you? Is it just like they just pepper you with all these? What if this happens? How do I deal with this? Yeah, uh, for the most part, it's it's a lot of Q and A. Um, once in a while, I can give them you know hypotheticals. Um, by body language as to things to do, not to do. Um, but most of it is, is verbal. Yeah. And, and, you know, my, again, my clients range and I don't represent anyone convicted of sex crimes or domestic violence. And that I would imagine is a huge fear because most people who are going to prison understand how inmates feel about people who have raped or molested children. And so I do get those calls, but I don't represent those clients. And I let them know the same way you're entitled to an attorney um, under the Constitution, there is no Constitution for prison consultants, but there are sharks that exist. And it's up to you to navigate the waters because I'm sure some prison consultant would not mind representing you the same way some attorneys would not, not mind representing you if the money is right. Now, um, having have gone through prison, it, do you find that it's possible to navigate it and to come out on the other side? Obviously, you've turned that negative into a positive in your life, but there's so much recidivism how how do you kind of attack it in terms of okay I'm gonna I have to go to prison, uh, and I just want to make the best of it. I want to make it productive time. I don't want it to to make it bad time. Yeah, um, the better educated you are, you can use that to work for you because you can continue that love of reading. You can continue that love of helping to educate others. So you have to really think of it is I'm, I'm going back to college, but I'm going to a relatively poor, poor college where most kids can't afford this. I mean, this isn't a Harvard where everyone's family for the most part has money. And so there's an opportunity to, to really give back and teach. You can teach stock. You can teach um, uh, bonds. You can teach different languages. You can teach setting up businesses such as a, a cleaning company. Um, there are so many things to teach if you have an education. And most of my clients do have an education. Um, if it's a musician and they're going to prison, there are music classes. You can, people, inmates are fascinated. Music is universal. So you can teach people uh, music from the bottom up. Um, it's it's all about being open-minded, and that's one of the beauties of, of sitting with people who think that prison is the end-all, be-all for them. It's not the end-all, be-all, and part of preparing people is getting them to really understand um, that they can become an asset if they exercise a little bit of humility, because if you have a lot of money, which most of my clients do, um, you're not going to go in there pompous and snap your fingers and think that you're going to use your money to get everybody to work for you. You know, you're going to exercise humility now. 
You know, people in prison have nothing but time. And the world simply does not revolve around you anymore. And so the sooner you understand that, the sooner that you can begin um, putting prison behind you. So what's a day in prison like? Well, it depends on where you are, what your custody level is. Um, if you're in a penitentiary, well, with COVID-19 now, it's it's miserable because a lot of prisons are having their food um, shuffled over to cells, where in the past, in low security prisons, um, you would walk to your cafeteria. and But because of social distancing, that may not be in place now. Um, but generally speaking, the lights come on between 5.30 and 6 in the morning, um, give you time to wash up and you know, you navigate your way to the cafeteria, you eat, the kitchen's generally open between, you know, 6.30 and 7.30 in the morning. After that, you go to your job. If your job does not start until 3 to 6 in the, in the evening, because you may work in the education department or you may work in the cafeteria. So you, let's just say I, my job is in the education department, but my shift is from, let's say, 11 to 7 at night. Well, I eat. I can go back to my room and read a book. I can go work out at the gym if I'm in a low-security prison and kind of use time to, you know, write letters, whatever the case may be. And at 7 o'clock, I report to my, my detail. If my job is first thing in the morning, well, then I'm actually – in my job from 7 to, you know, 12, 7 to 3. Uh, my job could also be in, in the uh, gym. So I may be stacking weights, you know, cleaning the gym floor, um, you know, a lot of sweeping, mopping, cleaning the bathrooms up, um, and just going about it as if I was on the outside and had a job. Um, if I'm off work that particular day, you know, I can work out, I can read letters, I can write letters and um, go take education classes in, in the education department. Um, if I have a dentist appointment, I would be on a list. And so I would get the list the day before, look at the list to see if I have a dentist appointment, a doctor's appointment. Um, whatever the case may be, it's about really about packing your schedule as best you can. But in a high security prison, my day doesn't start like that because I have maybe five to eight minutes to get from one part of the prison to another before the gates lock because there's controlled movement all day. So it's not as um, free wielding as, you know, perhaps the low security prison might be. So now, um, like you mentioned, COVID. So that's really changed how prison life goes day to day now? Oh, immensely. I mean, COVID has totally changed uh, how prisons operate. Um, you know, so, I mean, since we're out of Hawaii today, maybe start there. You know, you think about Halawa, one of the prison correctional institutions in, in Hawaii. Um, they're so overcrowded that they shipped people to, um, is it Suwarlo prison out in Arizona? Um, Suwarlo. And 
you know, 700 inmates have been infected. And um, out of the inmates that have been shipped from Hawaii to Arizona, um, three have died at the Suwarlu prison out in Arizona. And you have one guy shipped to um, Suwarlu um, from Idaho who's died. And so it's really putting um, family members um, on the brink because, you know, their children are now two or 3,000 miles away from home. Um, the infection rates are going up because of COVID-19. No one's getting mail. You can't get visits. And so, you know, there's very little movement, you know, within prisons now um, because of the virus. And some certain prisons have not uh, been the smartest about shifting and moving inmates around um, within the institution. And some prisons have gone as far as continuing to transfer inmates from prison to prison, which is um, causing, you know, the virus to spread more rapidly than it perhaps should have. Now, um, do you do you see a way out of this or is this something you got to just wait till the vaccine comes and and then that's how we'll solve this? Well, <laughs> you you really have to get to um, to the heart of the problem. Um Who's most vulnerable? The most vulnerable people are older people, even within the prison system. So let's just say a guy's been in prison, and it's a fact. Older people do not are not a problem once they're released. That that is a fact. And so when you have people who have been um, in prison for 10, 20, 30, 40 years their recidivism drops as people get older. And so that's the first thing that you have to look at. Um, you take these people who are aging and firm, and they're aging because their sentences have been much longer than a person who's been in prison for three months for a nonviolent crime. And so you want to release those inmates first. Because being sitting in prison doesn't approve a person's health. In fact, the Supreme Court justices, they were horrified to learn that a person was dying behind bars every six days to a preventable disease. So a person who spent decades in prison is more likely to be vulnerable to health threats um, just because they've been in prison for so long. So you have to start releasing those inmates. And California is as bad as it gets. You know, they have uh, rates in certain prisons like San Quentin. The infection rate is above 91%. Uh, Solano, the numbers are starting to peak, and that's a low security um, prison. And so you have to ask, you know, are these people really a safety risk to the public? And um, is it perhaps the parole board looks at these people as, to who deserves it and who doesn't deserve their mercy as opposed to looking at these people as potentially dying in prison. So now this just must be um, so demoralizing to the folks in prison that just to see, you know, uh, prisoner after prisoner get infected 
and like no uh, end in sight. Yeah, that's true. And, and when you heard two or three months ago, you heard about talks of herd immunity. You know, let's get everyone sick. And then once everyone has it, um, nobody else can be infected. And if you look at the, the numbers and the, and the deaths inside of prisons and what it's causing to staff members as well, who are actually the ones bringing it into prison because visits were canceled way before staff members started uh, becoming infected, um, herd immunity simply does not work. It, it does not work at all. But, you know, um, the government has codes, I think in California, Section 8658, and they have an emergency release valve for pandemics if the inmates of a state, county, or city um, are in imminent danger because of a health risk. And so Governor Newsom can do it, as well as certain um, senators around the country. I think Hawaii has a Kurt Vavella, I believe. Um, he's received a lot of um, uh, uh, pleas for help from inmates, um, the family members of inmates who have been um, shipped out of the state. And so um, it is a grim situation, but it's not impossible, but you have to do it smart and be fair. Now, have you, since you've been working in this space for a long time and you lived through this space uh, earlier in your life, do you see any kind of um, any program out there that it does a good job of helping a prisoner who wants to kind of get on the straight and narrow find a path out and find a way to live a productive, meaningful life outside of prison? Yeah, the LA project is a, a, a very successful project out in California. Out of New York, you have a Queens team entertainment or edutainment. Um, and that's going to be a biggie because they have some people who have uh, done 10, 20, 30 years, 40 years in some cases in prison and actually began mentoring and have come home and been successful, they know what it's like to get out of prison and stay out and, and the obstacles that you have to overcome. And the problem um, when you look at these programs is that when they're put in and considered, you don't have former inmates, they don't have a seat at the table. Uh, most of the time it's politicians and family members of politicians who throw questionable programs together and they get these college graduates to run these programs and before you know it the money's gone and the resources have not been utilized properly and it's misappropriation of funds at its best but there are programs out there um an, another great program that's really up and coming um uh lisa strong and d cook are have put a program together called uncuffed so that once inmates are released, they have a backpack with food and and clothing and so that they can get to the halfway houses to really make the necessary adjustments and not have to stress about where their next meal is coming from. And that's that's a program that's taken off up in Northern California right now. Is that the biggest problem that once you have somebody that's been in prison, once they get out, they're kind of back on their own again, and there's no kind of transitionary period that helps them get on their feet. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, Lee. Um, I mean, 
think about it. A guy does 10, 15, 20 years in prison. When's the last time he was actually fitted for clothes? <laughs> you know, you go in, your waist is a 30. You leave prison, you're, you're now 55, 60 years old. Your waist is anywhere between the 38 and the 46. And um, you're hungry. You have no money. You've been working for um, for a dollar fifty a day for the last twenty years, and that money's used for phone calls. And so, you know, everybody needs a little help. And um, in your work, when you're working, I know your clientele is a little different than maybe the average person. But in your work, when you're dealing with uh, the clients that you're dealing with, are you getting them internationally as well? Or are they just U.S. folks that are going to U.S. prison? Um, it's very rare that I get an international call. I've had attorneys uh, reach out to me that were from other countries, but they had associates or business partners here in the United States who they would want to pick my brain about. Do you ever get the person that doesn't want to be extradited to the United States? <laughs> Julian Assange. <laughs> Julian Assange, yeah, there, there was a recent decision uh, made where the judge agreed with everything. Well, actually, the judge shot down everything that the United States threw at them regarding um, his release, with the exception that what he did was outside of the scope of journalism. But she considers his mental health and his physical health as detrimental to him being transferred back to the United States because she doesn't believe that a United States prison will look out for his best interest. And so that's a quagmire. She understands that if he comes back to the United States, there's a likelihood that he'll get shipped to Colorado to Florence ADX Max and be underground like the Unabomber and other famous criminals. So you see that happen, uh, I guess, periodically as well, that there, the, the prisons in other countries care more about the welfare of the prisoners than they're, they're, they have a fear of sending them to America? Yeah, because they understand that America is not about rehabilitation, you know, which is why we still have, you know, the highest number of incarceration more than any other country in the world. And yet we're the wealthiest country. So when you're when your country's prison system is about making money for um, huge corporations and not about um, worrying if they're going to get addicted to drugs, commit another crime. Um, other countries, they have resources. You, United States won't invest in resources. Do you think that that's a it, it would be reasonable to expect a prisoner to be rehabilitated and not follow a life of crime? Like, is that do you think that's the prison, the the when we send someone to prison, that should be the the objective is the metric of success would be this person went to prison and never committed another crime. That's what we should be shooting for. Yeah, it's working in other countries. There's no reason why it should not work in the United States, who proclaims itself as the most educated and wealthiest country in the world. Why does it work in poorer countries? Why does it not work here? It's because you have to care first. 
But what about the people who say that part of the prison experience is punishment for doing something wrong? When does punishment end? That's that's the question. When is enough enough? Um, my closest friend, one of my closest friends, has been in prison for 30 years for attempted murder. Attempted murder. There have been people who have committed multiple murders and been released. Like, when is enough enough? Only in, only in the United States can somebody be given seven years to life and be in prison 30 years later and, and would have been um, disciplinary free for over 10 years. No disciplinary sanctions. But sometimes the parole boards take things personal and um, they don't look at rehabilitation the way they should look at rehabilitation. And, and it's about what have you done since you've been down? How do you know whether a person's going to actually commit another crime unless you take a look at the programming and see what they've done with their lives? That way you're taking the, excuse, the excuses away from the inmate. And from the parole board, look, measure him up. What was his education like when he came into the prison system? What is it like now? What companies are willing to look at this guy? What letters, what, what are people from the outside saying? What kind of support does this um, individual have? And sometimes that's the measuring stick, the support that they have on the outside. Now, um it's a very difficult, uh, I mean, I guess people who aren't in politics probably don't find this as difficult. If you're a politician, it's probably hard for you to be reelected without some sort of a tough on crime stand. Uh, and until that really changes, it's going to be difficult to get meaningful change, I would think, in the prison systems. Uh, I, I agree. I agree. But the states that have very good programs, the politicians end up looking good because they're not spending sixty-five dollars to $90,000 a year to incarcerate someone when you can educate someone um, for six dollars to $8,000 a year. Yeah, that what, right. When the money becomes enough, then the change will happen, I'm sure. Could you imagine if, if, you know, two guys who were both com convicted of the same same crime, one uh, one they give one 10 years in prison. Right. So that's a million dollars um, over 10 years to keep someone incarcerated. Right. And the other guy, they said, OK, we're going to put you through some college courses. We're going to help you get a degree. And he comes out with a trade. Let's just say a plumber, electrician, certified, right? They spend five grand getting this person's license to become a licensed plumber and a licensed electrician, right? And then they get him bonded. And they, with those bonds, they reach out to local companies to see if they'll hire this guy. And now all of a sudden the guy is paying taxes. He's out in three years with paying taxes back while... The other guy sits in jail for 10 years, a million dollars, comes home with no skills. Right. It, it doesn't make any sense. Like, I mean, the way you describe it, it, it makes literally no sense to have 
people just be locked up uh, with no hope and no skills, no training. Um, it just, it's a, it's a bad situation and, and it's going to be, it's a, it's just a really hard problem to solve for a lot of folks. And I think that the politicians are kind of at the, at the forefront of the ones that have to step up and solve the problem because, or the public has to get outraged to the point where they don't tolerate it anymore. Yeah. And you know, what's funny, Lee, when I came home, I was applying to Home Depot. I tried to get jobs at Marshall's, uh, Target, and everybody who ran a background check, I was not good enough to work for. Yet, if you look at the prison system and corporations, they don't have a problem with prison labor. JCPenney and Kmart, they sell jeans made by inmates in Tennessee. You got American Airlines and Avis Rent-A-Car. They use inmates to take reservations. Victoria's Secrets uses inmates to cut production costs in South Carolina. Um, female inmates are used to sew their products. And then you think about Verizon and Sprint. Those are major telecommunication companies who use inmates to provide telecommunication services and, and use at their call centers. Starbucks, they may not hire an ex-felon, but they do um, have a subcontractor called Signature Packaging Solutions. And in Washington State, those inmates are used to package holiday coffees. Walmart uses uh, inmates as well. They hire inmates to clean products of the UPC barcodes so that products could be resold. Wendy's and McDonald's, they rely on inmates to process beef patties. And so when you look at what corporate America, how they look at inmates and how they uh, will will use that slave labor to to produce their products, yet the inmates are not good enough to work for them once they're released back into society. That's a problem. Yep, this is a very complicated and sad problem for a lot of folks. And uh, we really appreciate you fighting the fight here. If somebody wants to learn more about your program or get a hold of you to speak or to consult, uh, what's the best way to do that? You can go to my website, Prison Coach Speaking and Consulting. Um, I'm on Instagram, John Doc Fuller. Matter of fact, you can Google John Doc Fuller and um, I'll pop up, you know. And so uh, I'm, I'm doing a lot of things over Zoom um, because, you know, out of respect for my family and the families of many Many around the country, I would never want to, to travel until it's safe. I don't travel for because the airlines say it's safe or for uh, uh, economical pro <laughs> uh, economical advantage for a uh, big business. I'll travel when it's safe um, for others as well as myself. But I am doing some consulting via Zoom and um, still doing mentoring via Zoom. Well, thank you again for all the work that you're doing. Thank you as well, Lee. Appreciate you. All right. This is Lee Cantor. We will see you all next time on Oahu Business Radio. 